Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jo. And I'm Joey, and this is our second podcast of May 2020. We're recording it on May the 13th and it will go out slightly later in the month. Our first podcast of this month was about the ingredients of a great social worker and we were looking at the values and ethics domain. Thank you so much for continuing to listen and I want to give out some particular thanks to Julia Campbell, Katie Cole, Bonnie Tours, Laura Jane, David Hoodmont, Adrian Wheeler, Two Cats Too Many, Yvonne Boyle, Andy Porter, Deborah Hadwin and Leanne the Linus who've recently shared the podcast. And you can tell us what you think um, by visiting our website www.helpfulsocialwork.com or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. Yes, we, we really do want to hear from you. Um, we always enjoy understanding what it is that people are looking for. And um, I did like the comment that we were like, a, what was it, like a nice hug? Was oh, yeah. that right? That was yeah, a really lovely to us. Yeah, it wasn't that nice. See, <laughs> we can be useful, Jerry. <laughs> But this is our um, one of our second podcasts, and for the second podcast of the month, we said we'd talk about things that might be useful. Um, and today, we thought that it would be timely to talk about loss. I think that it's fair to say that this has been something that has been percolating around our conversations. Um, Jerry and I, we get a lot of comfort out of our chats, pre and post pod. Um, it won't come as any surprise to our regular listeners to find that um, I talk to Jerry often for about half an hour before we actually start work. Um, so <laughs> I've been quite good today. But lately, our, our theme just keeps returning to what we're experiencing the, in the world around us in the time of COVID-19. And it seems that we return to loss, um, loss of freedom to do the things we took for granted like for me, it was swimming, stress-busting sessions, or organ playing at the local church. We've moved into much deeper waters, I think, with loss of revenue and businesses, income options, things that not only impact on ourselves, but our friends and families and on strangers. Loss of plans, such as holidays, <laughs> progress with our renovation, loss of young people's ability to hang with their friends and do the important stuff around separating from their parents, and um, finally, we would end up talking about the physical loss that people were suffering of their loved ones. And when we talked about loss for ourselves, we would notice that we would kind of end up saying, of course, compared to other people, we're lucky, which we knew to be true. But we started to wonder why it might be we can't talk about loss without having to always add how lucky we are. And, and I think for me, I, I want to know, is there a way we can sit comfortably with our sadness about the things we've lost without having to put them on some kind of, of pain scale? And, and I don't really know the answer to this, but I do know that I've been struggling with the things I've lost. And I can see the same feeling in other people, particularly when I'm doing my coaching work with social workers. And I guess I wanted to use this podcast, Jerry, to explore if there's a way that people can be comfortable in each other's sadness or sitting with each other's loss. Yes, I think that's that's really helpful to think about. The, I mean, the definition of loss includes all these different ideas about um, the act of losing, the thing that's lost, 
the condition or state of being without something, the amount of the thing that you've lost or the, the level of harm or suffering, or sometimes you know, it can just refer to people like casualties or to destruction. So there's, there is a sort of an automatic variation and variability in that and sort of it leads us, I think, to scale things. Um, mm. But like you say, it's really personal, isn't it? And I, I would hope that the communal experience of loss would bring us together rather than separate us out in in a sense of my loss or you know is doing different from yours somehow um and i think i'm just thinking i was thinking about experience of working with loss as a social worker and yeah there's just such a range of experiences isn't there um some some was about more about the loss of someone some of it was about other people's loss working with people who had lost some of it was my own loss um as i moved around or did different things um or new relationships ended um some of it was the resonance that of something that happened to me that i then brought to my work um but actually none of those things help are helpful in terms of thinking about it was being mine or someone else's it's it's always there's always been a kind of relational experience in there some sort of shared experience because we feel other people's loss and other people mm-hmm. feels feel ours so maybe that connection and relationship aspect of it is is something to kind of hang on to a bit more yeah i i like your idea of um particularly with covid19 being able to think about loss as a community and being able to articulate that loss as a community and kind of express it um, and certainly here in, in my little hometown, uh, in the last decade, we've had two devastating floods and now COVID-19. Um, and so in terms of resilience and understanding how to overcome these kind of acts of God, I guess, um, our community has a, a really quite a rich language, actually, um, and it has um, a lot of go-to experiences to to manage, um, and and you can see that. So yes, I think there is there is something about um, community loss being expressed, and then community ex- resilience being explored that that can be really helpful. And I think we don't want to separate out different aspects of loss either. So yeah, the. the um, that you were going to go on and talk about the different kinds of lost people feel, which mm. aren't easily separable, are they? I mean, it's not just one thing, yeah. one type of thing. I, I think that's right. I, I was kind of, yeah, as I was, th- I was trying, kind of thinking about the different kinds of loss I'd experienced over my lifetime, um, and I guess that came back from the from the um, definition you had, because the definition implies that there is different experiences of loss and I was thinking okay well what about for me well you know there's been very personal losses like the loss of my dearly beloved mother from cancer and for me these are kind of like the affairs of the heart where the ache remains over time and for me it's always like a bit of a tender spot on your body you can kind of press it and you can still feel the memory of that pain um and then for me I thought well the other thing I've really struggled with over in the COVID-19 period um, is loss of control. And then I thought, well, for some people, they would experience that perhaps as loss of control over their own body. I, was, I started to think about 
um, people I'd worked with with disabilities or people who had illnesses or accidents um, and how that you you experience loss of control over your body. And then I thought, well, over my own future, that's what I'm feeling loss of control over at the moment. Um, over how your past is talked about or how your current actions or motivations are deciphered by others. And, and, and in that what regard, in terms of social work, I was thinking about parents who um, or children who experience the um, child protection or care system and what it must be like to have other people interpreting what it is that you're doing and, and how that would be a loss of control for you. And then I thought about loss of choice where options narrow or disappear and you're kind of left with one road to walk, um, kind of like, you know, Frodo and Samwise making their way into the, you know, fire of doom type thing. And then loss of dignity, where your ability to dictate how you care for yourself and appear to the outside world. And once again, I was thinking how sometimes illness or mental health um, can really impact on that. And then... For me, I think one of the things that COVID has really kicked in for me is um, this this loss that's associated with failure, um, the loss of ambition or goals or achievement or effort, um, that kind of idea that, you know, you've done all of this and now for some reason you're going to lose it all. So that, that kind of... Um, Loss, and then and then I thought about oh well that also means expectations, and I don't know how it was for you, Jerry, but I was very promising in my twenties. Uh, people used to tell me that all the time. You know, I was a bright young thing, and um, people were often very excited about uh, the idea of working with me or or of mentoring me and those things because I was you know had all this promise, and then almost it felt like overnight I stopped being promising, and I just became the person I was and I was like oh how did that happen <laughs> like you know no one's talking about me anymore as if I'm you know a bright young thing um and 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 there's heaps of other things that happened instead but I do remember that moment and yeah so for me what I thought about was there there are different ways that we experience loss and it's about how do we talk about it, fit it into our life and make the best use of it, I guess. I, I was thinking, you know, if I should be granted my full allotment of 80 plus years on this earth, I imagine that I'll be able to add more and more things to this list of losses. But, you know, it's about, it's about how we make sense of it, I guess. Yes, there's so much in that, isn't there? So many different um, experiences of loss. Um, I wanted to kind of home in a bit on some of the things we know are experiences of loss at the moment in COVID-19. Mm. Um, just some of the kind of more sort of stark things, I suppose, because there's yeah. you know, all of these things will be bound up in that. And I think the thing you said about loss of control and, and choice and opportunity is, is has a real resonance. Um, but the Office of National Statistics in the UK has published a lot of data um, so there are a few things we'll see that, that really stand out. So as of um, the latest statistics a couple of days ago, um, there had been 32,065 official deaths um, mm. in all settings, not just in hospitals. Um, 
some estimates put things higher, but that's the national statistics um, kind of uh, data. Um, we've got data about the inequality of impact. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that really kind of jumps up from that in our sector is that men and women working in social care, uh, which would include care workers and home carers, have significantly higher rates of death compared with people of the same age and sex in the general population. That's an England and Wales stat. Um, so 23.4 deaths per 100,000 for men compared with 9.9 .9 for the rest of the population. And for women, it's 9.6 compared to 5.2. So really quite evident. And then also there's inequality around, as we know, we've talked about this before, around people from um, non-white groups, minority ethnic groups. Mm. Um, and in particular, black males and females are nearly twice as likely as white people with similar characteristics to experience a COVID-19 death. And then we also have really good stats about um, the kind of economic and social impact around businesses, um, loss of activity, people who've had to be furloughed, um, you know, the number of workers who can't work, um, people who, and then the data about people being at home, not being able to go out. Um, and one of the things that jumped out to me was that um, for just under three in 10 adults, 29% said that they'd been self-isolated for seven days um, and those aged 70 years and over about half said that they'd been self-isolated and um, people with an underlying health condition around 41 percent so talking about a really large group of population who are, are stuck they're really stuck um, mm. and that the other thing that from what you were saying that really made me think about was the, kind of some of the language around this and yeah, that loss of control not just about what you can do but also how how other people think about you so we have all this terminology around at the moment about on the one hand the vulnerable on the other hand the heroes and mm. some people are out there doing great things and some people are you know, furloughed just vulnerable mm. you know, and and using language around kind of you know people who are facing barriers or people who are at additional risk or people who are experiencing additional struggles and things i think mm. it's much more helpful than kind of um almost taking away people's sort of identity as well as all the things you know, there you know, that's an additional loss isn't it and I think that's a really good point and as you said that I was thinking for me um, because in my company we've had to furlough some of our staff and have some of our staff working and what I've done is I've every three weeks I move them over so that everybody's getting a chance to work because what the furloughed staff were saying was that they felt as if their usefulness had been furloughed as well um and so there's and that's part of their identity isn't it and then that suffers that causes a loss as well so yes I, I think that language and how we use it thoughtfully with each other um in this time is is super important as well it helps to show the value doesn't it that we set on people or the perception of the value um we have, to, yes. we have to be really careful yeah yes yeah and there's and, and that leads on to I guess um because you know that value that we put on people and how people are are feeling about that leads directly on to our well-being the impact of COVID-19 on our well-being and actually there's some some figures around that as well um you know the portion of adults who said their well-being was affected increased in the last week, that's um, this was um, 27th of April, 48% compared with the week before, 46%.
And I think that this is one of the things that I've been noticing um, just anecdotally while I've been um, doing my coaching sessions is in the last five days or so, people have been talking much more openly about the stress and difficulty of the situations they're finding themselves in. And and just a, a good example for me is a young mother who has a three-year-old child who expects when she's home to be able to have access to her, having to lock her away from from that access because she's having to work. So, you know, not attending to your child in the way your child is used to in the home setting is is stressful and causing this person legitimate distress. So there's all sorts of things as this um, situation goes on that I think people are starting to feel the impact of. And it's um, interesting that there is some, some research around about the mental health consequences of epidemics. Um, and it says that after large-scale disasters, there's very little around the epidemics, but after large-scale disasters, whether they're traumatic, like the World Trade Centre attacks or mass shootings or natural, like hurricanes or environmental, like the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, they're almost always accompanied by increases in depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorder, and a broad range of mental and behavioural disorders. And certainly um, the World Health Organisation has warned that we should understand the impact of quarantine um, will, that, and what will happen to levels of loneliness, depression, harmful drug and alcohol use, self-harm and even suicidal behaviour. They expect it to rise. Um, and Mental Health UK has also indicated this, and they have a whole lot of really great tip sheets about managing your mental health um, in the time of COVID. And I think it's just fair to say that people will be adversely affected by this experience and that its impact, impact will be felt for some times in our community, both locally, nationally and internationally. Yeah, and I think... Um... In terms of how to respond to that, I mean, we'll come on to talk about the specific social work role, but I had to, I had a look back at some of the theory around this, which I think is quite helpful to go back to. Um, so I mean, a kind of classic element of theory is the Kubler-Ross grief cycle. There's been lots of commentary about that. Essentially, it, it talks through the kind of emotional responses that you might have to a loss, um, came from work around people experiencing dying. Um, mm -hmm. had, um, who knew that they were they were going to die, but it kind of is extrapolated to bereavement and various other losses. And, and there's, there's lots of commentary about whether the, the emotions that the Kubler-Ross work shows are the ones that people experience, whatever, but people do experience emotions when they lose things. Um, it's a range of emotions and your emotional state changes and there's a need for emotional support. And I think that that's a really important element of theory to kind of grasp. Um, mm. And you know, when when you draw on kind of attachment theory as well, and uh, that helps us think about some of the responses to um, to loss as well. Um, so people might um, experience shock, they might experience yearning and searching, they might experience disorganisation, they might experience then hopefully resolution or, or reorganisation. Um, um, but there's a couple that I found really, really helpful when I was looking at this. So J. William Warden talks about the tasks of mourning. So mourning as a response to loss. So without mm. putting these in any particular order, some of the tasks that you have to do are to accept 
the reality of the loss, process the grief and pain, adjust to an environment without the beloved object um, and relocate that um, person or or thing um, to somewhere else in your life to find a way of making maintaining a connection with them whilst moving on a new path, which I, I just thought those those tasks were really helpful. But also um, the other thing I found helpful was Strober and Schutt, who have a dual process model of response to grief, um, which is moving between loss orientated processes and restoration orientated processes. So you need to orientate yourself differently to the loss and orientate yourself to a restoration. So you're kind of oscillating between those things. And sometimes you're mm. doing more lo like loss work and sometimes you're doing more restoration work. Mm. So I just find those both um, really helpful. And the last thing I wanted to mention from theory is um, the idea of disenfranchised grief, which is when we're mourning something that can't be publicly or openly acknowledged. And I think that goes back to some of the things we were saying about you know, hierarchies of loss, you know, which you know, some mm. things are acceptable to mourn and other things not so much, but it's someone's reality, isn't it? That's what we need to work with. I really love these models, Jerry. For me, some of the things that I find really helpful in them um, is, first of all, that idea that actually we don't all go through the same feelings. There could be shock and numbness or yearning and searching, disorientation and disorganisation, you know, that those could be all sorts of different ways that we're responding at different times. Um, and also for me, that idea of relocation of of um, the object, I guess, or the person to find that enduring connection with them. Um, and I know that, you know, I lost my mum as I talk about, but, you know, it was a really big thing for me. Um, and one of the things that I found very helpful is that I keep and wear her wedding ring. And that's something that I do always. And so I just kind of, it's on my finger. I just know that it's a little bit of her in my head about um, so there's all sorts of ways that you can you can manage this stuff. Um, I think for me, you know, when we think about good practice around losses as, as, as professionals, I think what I've learned over the years of working with people who've suffered loss, and because I started off in the disability field, children with disabilities who often had um, life-limiting conditions, I started my career working with the heavy end of loss, really, where, where people were losing their children. Um, and one of the things I learned is there's no right way to mourn. Um, you know, part of the social work role is actually to be able to bear witness to someone's pain without kind of turning away from it or stopping it or fixing it. And that that looks different for each person. And I think for me, um, you know, sometimes it's enough to sit next to a person and let them kind of follow their grief storm in the safety of a witness, you can be like an anchor sitting next to someone without touching them or without interfering with where they are. You can let them lose control, knowing that they have safety, if that makes sense. Um, you know, and, and in doing that, I've kind of, I've sat next to people in graveyards or driven around listening to um, a friend of mine lost um, someone she loved and she made up a tape of all the all the music that that person loved and then she used to love playing it in the car and I would just sit with her and she'd play all the music and talk about that person. Um, there's all sorts of different ways that we as professionals can provide containment, which is what we're trying to do without platitudes. And I think one of the struggles for us 
is because we're very solution focused, um, it can feel quite painful for us to witness pain without trying to fix it. But that's one of the things, you know, sometimes you can't fix things. And, and, and as a professional, we have to be able to be okay about that. And the other thing for me is just understanding that while we're finding a way to relocate the loss or the pain and to open ourselves up to new possibilities, there's, there's no rules on how long that takes. Um, and we need to be able to allow people to take the space that they need to, to adjust to loss and to relocate um, that kind of, um, I guess it's like that we should know that that loss is not going to go away. It's it's going to inform how they behave in the future. Um, and we should be curious about how people are going to honour that loss and find a way back to a life that offers them both comfort and joy. Because as social workers, we're interested in supporting people to live the best life they can. And if you're in a period of loss, it might not be the fullest life you can live, but it's the one you can bear to live right now. And that's okay as well. Does that make sense? Instead of, you know, kind of pushing people to be better. Yeah, that's, I think that that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. And um, so the other thing that I wanted to mention was the um, Basel guide, professional practice guide that's just come out around end of life social work during mm. COVID-19, um, which echoes some of those things. Um, and it, it's in, it's in two parts really, as they, all the guidance is um, what social workers can can offer, but also what support social workers need. And in terms of um, the kinds of things we can be doing, um, having awareness of loss and particularly of being mindful of the, the differences of loss. Some of those are related to equality issues and um, some of the cultural social differences. So being open to, to noticing and seeing that um, and then being open to talking about it and being able to find information or practical help um, as needed, but also just being prepared to listen. And um, the, the guide actually says to listen to people's story of, story of grief, recognise grief as normal, while at the same time helping people recognise if grief is particularly prolonged or complex or distress is extreme or if the person seems unsafe. Oh, yeah. So being able to kind of, like you say, hold that position but also recognize when we need to get additional help um, and then in terms of the kind of support for social workers um, we need to have the opportunity as social workers to talk about the experiences and the impact on us and to debrief and to get supervision and peer support and with that comes a recognition that again this is really personal isn't it there isn't a right or wrong way to process our own loss um, or other people's and the impact of other people's on us. And, and one of the things that I'm really noticing at the moment is that, echoes what you were saying earlier, that initial kind of proactive, let's get on and do stuff. Um, we're moving now into a kind of, this is a long haul. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is allowing some of the loss to come out in a way um, that maybe we didn't to start with because people were so busy. Mm. Um, and so I would expect to see social workers needing to talk more about the impact of, of what's happening on them. Um, and we need to be able to do that without any sort of 
guilt or judgment of ourselves or others you know that real kind yeah. of this is how it is let's mm. work with with how it is yeah yeah. And to stop feeling that um, pressure to be resilient. This is what I've noticed, right, is that so I say to workers, I've been talking to workers about their bandwidth. So when they come on to me, I say, okay, how much bandwidth do you have today? How much are you able to offer me in terms of your availability for learning? How much of your bandwidth is preoccupied with the work you're trying to do? How much of your bandwidth is preoccupied with family or other matters? You know, what is it that you've that you've got in your capacity to be able to take in the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, and lots of people will then start to talk about what's impacting on them. And then they almost immediately kind of chide themselves and say, oh, but that's really negative talk. And that's, that's you know, that's not helpful for, for you know, we've got to think positively and we've got to be resilient and we've got to, and it's like, well, yes, you do. And of course, if the only story you tell yourself is a really difficult one, then that's going to affect your mood. But there's something about actually being able to speak things out and acknowledge them and then put them in their place rather than kind of telling yourself off for even uttering them in the first place. So I think there is um, there's a big emphasis on resilience as, as being coping. And, you know, to cope means to shroud or to cover up. That's what to cope means. And we don't want people to cope. We want people to thrive. And thriving means that you have to be very realistic about everything that's in your environment that's contributing to your ability to grow and flourish because you've got to take it all into account um, when you balance yourself. So, yeah. Yeah, some of the kind of critical reflection things that we've talked about in the past of um... – I mean, there's, there's the proactive kind of ones where you're working through what's happened and reflecting and analysing and planning. But there are also quite a lot of models which are about um, sharing an experience and sitting with it and it just being a a chance to allow what's happened, you know, what's kind of in, in you <laughs> to kind of mm. come out mm. in a safe space and mm. without any pressure to be any particular kind of person or do any particular kind of thing about it and I think that some of the most valuable support I've had and some of the best conversations we've had have just been that kind of there it is yeah doesn't need to be solved can't be fixed doesn't need to be obsessed over I just want to put it in there I just want to put it out. Um, I think uh, restorative justice circles would be uh, – restorative practice circles, sorry, at this moment would be very helpful for that kind of stuff because that's one of the lovely things about restorative practice is it invites everybody to bring their authentic self into a space without being judged about what that looks like. And I think that that's, um, that's really helpful. I was thinking of some reflective questions, uh, Jerry, and the first thing that I thought of, because this is the other thing that I've noticed, right, is that when you experience loss, of course it triggers past loss and past traumas that you've had. It's informed. Your understanding of, of what you're experiencing now is informed by your past. Um, and so for COVID-19, one of the things that I've been watching is how different people respond to threat of loss and the different things they do. And I thought, okay, well, how does my own experience of loss inform the way I live my life? 
Because if we can understand that, then we can understand a little bit about how we can hear other people's loss. Um, and then the other thing I thought about was, well, how can I support other people who are experiencing loss to live the best lives they can today? So as a social work practitioner, what contribution can I make to other people that helps them to live the best life they can today and accepts that that is actually good enough? <laughs>